This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Morning, everybody. I was outreach yesterday. Awesome, good. Y'all, y'all went out in the rain. Who, 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 for whom was it their first time going door to door? Wow, I'm proud of you guys. I, I really am, cause, cause you did it in spite of the rain. I was, I was talking to my husband, and I said, you know, we, we were praying in our room, looking out at the rain. <laughs> but, but I, I said to him, I said, you know. It, it's kind of unfortunate that it's raining today because you know if it's your first time to go out and you're scared and then it's like now you have an excuse because it's raining <laughs> but but if you push through that then you guys are going to be like I mean you guys are super missionaries you know that means nothing will stop you amen <laughs> okay alright um, on my way here well I was trying to get here sequence of events happened this morning and then um, the last one of which my, was my son, who's almost three, hijacked my phone, and he hit it, and I'm like, where's my phone? Because I have my notes on my phone, and he's like, no, mama, I'm going to go preach. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, okay, what are you going to preach about? He's like, Noah. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> but I eventually found my phone, and here we are. All right. Thank you for the prayer and the song. God is good. Um. This is, it's, it's a very simple song, God is so good, and yet it's actually very profound because it, it goes to the heart of what the great controversy about, is about. It's about the character of God. Like, is God a good God? Is he a trustworthy God? And our speaker this morning uh, spoke a little bit about this, right? About uh, the guy who was on the plane, and, and because as he traveled around, he was seeing all, all of the pain and the hurt and, and the injustice that was happening in the world, and it makes, made him doubt the existence of God to the point that he, he would have concluded himself to be an atheist. So this morning, uh, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about two things, um, Try and decide which part of the board I don't really need. I'm going to get rid of this side. Uh, two things we're going to talk about. Uh, on your programs, it says free will and the sovereignty of God. We will talk about that. And we will also talk about the question of theodicy, which we only managed to intro yesterday. But before we get into those things, I just want to make a couple of notes about the great controversy as a meta narrative. Why is it important? Why is it important to know the, the story that we talked about yesterday, the story that we outlined yesterday? Why is that important for us to know that? Well, the thing is, uh, truth impacts you. That's why. It's important because truth makes a difference. What you know about a situation changes the way that you perceive the situation. It changes the way that you relate to the situation. So truth is important. Amen? That's why we go out and spread the gospel, right? Because people need to know the truth because it changes your life. And so the great controversy as a story, as a meta-narrative, is important for our lives and it's important for the lives of the people we share it with is because it changes everything. When I give Bible studies, one of the first Bible studies I give, if not the very first, depending on the situation, is the great controversy meta-narrative. And the reason I do that is because it gives you a global perspective of everything else you're going to talk about. After that, when you talk about, you know, the Sabbath, when you talk about state of the dead, when you talk, all these other doctrines that we end up sharing, when you put them in the perspective of the great controversy and you understand that there is a battle that is going on right now trying to convince the world that God is not trustworthy, that God is not good, then these falsehoods that are competing with the truths of the Bible now make sense in a context. Does that make sense to you? I remember I was working at Grand Valley State University as a chaplain and um, I was giving Bible study to these young ladies uh, and uh, I, I gave the Bible study on the, and this was the moment where I decided that I'm always going to do this as one of my first studies. We had studied a bunch of different things, but when I gave the Bible study on the great controversy, 
No, they looked at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, you know, there is this huge cosmic battle that started up in heaven where, you know, Lucifer, one of God's created beings, the highest among all the angels, decided that he wanted to usurp the position of God. And ever since then, he's been on this vendetta to, to tarnish God's name. And we fall into that picture. And, and everything he does in our lives to try and, and mar the picture of God is because he's got this huge vendetta that started a long time ago. And we're, we're part of this big story. And it's like their eyes were opened. And they said, why? We've been going to church all our lives. Why didn't anybody ever tell us this? Because now it makes sense. Like, it makes sense, you know, why I get tempted. You know, did you ever wonder, like, oh man, like, why, why the devil just dogging me? He's just always on my case. Because there's, there's a bigger picture that is involved. And we're going to talk today the story of Job. We're going to touch on the story of Job when we're talking about, we're, we're talking about this free will and the, the, the whole question of theodicy. So we fall, we fall into this picture of the great controversy that's happening. Turn with me to John 17, verse 17. John 17. Seventeen. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. And thy word is truth. What I'm saying is truth makes a difference. Truth changes you. Look, if you've ever been told that you have to have devotions in the morning and evening, and focus on the word of God all day. This is why. You know, um, I, I had a struggle one time. And I said, Lord, you know, there are the things that I, I know that I should want to do. But I don't want to do them. Right? It's kind of sound like Romans 7. Like there are things that I know that I should want to do. But I don't want to do them. And I don't want to be fake. Okay? Because I've gone to church and I've seen those fake Christians who be standing up there singing hallelujah, but you know what's going on behind the scenes. Right? And I was like, I don't want to be one of those. So I want to be an authentic Christian, but there are things that I know I should want to do, but I know I don't want to do. How do I become the person that does the things that I don't want to do that I should do? Do you follow the dilemma? There are young people who choose not to go to church and I say this from personal conversations with them, they choose not to go to church because they want to be authentic Christians and they're like, you know what, I'm not going to fake it, I'm not going to go to church and be up there saying hallelujah I love Jesus when I know I don't love Jesus you know, so I'd rather just not go because so, I don't want to be fake now it's, it's, a, it's a real dilemma because I know I've experienced it but what we just read in the Bible actually is the answer to that question. How do I become the thing that I know I should be, but I don't want to be, and I don't want to fake that I'm being the thing that I'm not? How, how do I have an authentic experience? The Bible tells us the truth changes us. Spending time in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, having devotions in the morning, devotions in the evening, focusing, meditating on the Word of God, it actually changes you. Does somebody believe me here today? <laughs> the Word of God changes who you are. And you don't have to be a fake Christian. You don't, you're not sitting there saying, I love Jesus when you don't love Jesus. You actually love Jesus in your heart. This is the miracle of the gospel. The truth changes you. My question is, how do you relate to truth? How do you relate to the truth? Uh, let, let's read another text, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. Uh, it says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. So it's talking about those people who perish in the end. And then it gives criteria for the type of people who perish in the end. And it says, Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So it's telling us that at the end, the people who are not saved are not people who necessarily didn't know the truth. Maybe they didn't know the truth because they didn't want to know the truth because they didn't have a love for truth. Or maybe they knew the truth because they happened to grow up in the church, but they didn't love the truths that they were learning. But the kind of people who are saved in the end are the people who love truth. It, was that clear from the verse? My question this morning is, how do you relate to truth? How do you feel about truth? Because truth matters. Truth matters. Last thing I want to say in our preamble uh, notes is that the great controversy, aside from it being a truth that, that shapes your reality, is that the great controversy offers perspective. And perspective is important. I heard this story one time about an elephant. Has anyone ever seen an elephant in person? I mean, those things are huge, right? They're, they're like, they're bigger than a car, and like, they're, 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 they're scary. I heard the story about an elephant that showed up at uh, the base of an ant colony. And so the ants start having a conversation. They're like, hey, there's an anomaly outside. We need to go check it out. And so all the science ants, you know, the scientific community of the ant colony got together. And they set out on an expedition. And they decided that they got to approach this anomaly from different perspectives, right? They need a ground crew. They need a flight crew that's going to go in. You know, so they, they're like coordinating their, their approach. And so some of the ground crew grow it, go in. And they, they examine this anomaly, and they're like, this thing is solid. It's firm, round, knocked on it. They're like, it's really hard, actually. And they looked up, and they couldn't see the end of it. And they were like, this is like a prehistoric tree that just popped up out of the ground, and now it's in front of our ant colony. And they concluded that what had shown up in front of their ant colony was a new colony of trees. Because they saw, four, they saw the one they were examining, they saw another one in the distance and another one over there. They're like, man, we've been invaded by fast-growing prehistoric trees, was their conclusion, right? Then you had the, there was the, the air crew that, that flew in on their drones, ant drones, and they, 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 they got up and they, they got up to, like, to, to this section and, and, and as they disembarked, what they felt was kind of squishy, right? And they were like, man, this is, and, and, and it's kind of thin, and as they slid down around it, they were like, this is, it's flappy, man, it feels like a wing, kind of, and, and they're like, this must be some kind of a flying creature, right? But it's a huge flying creature, and maybe it's got wings all around it. And, and they went to the other side, and they found another wing, and they said, we have been invaded by huge flying creatures full of wings. Are you getting where I'm going with the story? And the, the other ants that, that were part of the ground crew approached from the front, and they found this long thing, and they, they climbed up it, and they're like, man, this is like a snake, right? And they were like, let's go to the backside, and they found another snake. They're like, they got thick snakes and thin snakes. <laughs> All of them were looking at an, at an elephant, but they were looking from different perspectives. And because their perspective was limited, their conclusion about what was taking place was uh, wonky, right? It was kind of off. When we come to situations, uh, if we don't have perspective, sometimes the conclusions that we can reach will be wonky, to put it that way. 
What the great controversy does is it zooms out and it says, hey, science ants, uh, let me take you on uh, my, my, my jet, uh, airplane carrier, and it takes the entire colony of the ants and they look from above and they see the entire elephant. <laughs> they see the whole elephant and then they're like, oh, it's an elephant. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, so that's what the great controversy does. It gives perspective. Comments, questions? We're now going to the question of the Odyssey. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Um, we said we, we talked about yesterday these, these qualities of God and what we're going to talk about here when we talk about the question of theodicy and, and the question of free will actually has to do with I pointed out yesterday it has to do with these two qualities um, and we juxtap- we'll juxtapose them with the last quality of God is love so Job chapter 1 we're going to read the Bible now verse 1 There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons, three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep. It lists a whole lot of what he had. (laughs) A lot of things. Verse 5, And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone that Job sent and sanctified his children. This man was a holy man. He was, he was holy in himself and he was looking out for his family. His kids would go out and party and he would make sure that he was praying for his children who were out partying. I don't know, some of you may have testimonies about back when you were in the world and your mom was praying for you or your dad was praying for you until finally one day you came back to the fold. This was the kind of man that Job was. No, you know something that kind of, uh, okay, peeves me tangentially? Um, it's kind of, you know... I hear a lot of stories about mothers who are praying for their kids. And I'm like, where are the fathers who are praying for their kids? You know, Job chapter 1 talks about a father who was praying for his children. Like, they would go out and their, whatever they went out to do, you know, he wasn't there at their feast or whatever, but he was home praying for his children. And I'm like, where are the men today who are praying for their children. Where are the men who are praying for their church? That's a side note that pleased me. Okay, so Job was a praying man. Job was a man who was committed to his family. He was a man who was committed to his God. Now there was a day in verse 6 when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. I want you to note this. We got this preamble, this story about Job, this guy who is a great guy. I mean, he is socially upstanding. This guy is... He, in the community, he is respected. In, in his home, he is respected. Everybody who looks at him, nobody can say Job is a bad guy. He's not going out drinking and wasting all the money and then they're not paying for electricity because he spent all the money on alcohol or whatever. He is an upstanding man, right? That's who Job is. Both in his family and outside. You know, it's <laughs> the Bible when it talks about leaders of the church... One of the things it says, it, it, it says, you know, uh, that you should look for men who are well respected in the community and men who have good command of their homes. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, you get in a church and I don't know, I, I have a bunch of friends who left the church because their dad was an elder. Before they got to church, he was yelling. He's like, that's why every time we go to church on Sabbath, uh, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. And it's like night and day. It's like, who's that guy who is back home yelling at us? And like now I'm going to church, like suddenly he's all holy and stuff, right? So, so and, and that discourages faith. But Job wasn't that kind of guy. He wasn't the kind of guy who was different out there and at home. He was the kind of person that he, his character was solid. Who he was at home is who he was out in the world. 
So we have that picture of Job. And then, then the Bible takes us to kind of a, a different place. And it says, meanwhile, this is something that Job is unaware of. Job is busy living his life, doing his thing, you know, trying to be faithful to God, faithful to his family. Meanwhile, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, whence comest thou? Where are you coming from, Satan? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. The picture that's painted here is that there was some kind of a meeting of who are called the sons of God. And apparently, when God asks Satan, where are you coming from? He states that I am coming from a particular territory. And the territory I'm coming from is the earth. So the picture that is emerging is that these sons of God are representatives of different territories in the universe. And it says Satan also came among them. Maybe he doesn't regularly go to these meetings, but today he decided to show up. And he shows up as a representative of the territory called earth, which we live in, right? You know, you know the Bible talks about Jesus as the son of God? Do you know who else was called son of God? Think about a genealogy, the New Testament, genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back and it says Adam son of God Adam was initially supposed to, he's, Adam should have been the guy who was here representing the earth he's the guy who should have been like hey you know, uh, you know I'm just going to tell you how things are going on earth you know I, I just saw Alyssa and I saw Marcos and you know everybody's going dandy you know like we're just worshipping the Lord but Adam wasn't there because of what we read in Genesis chapter 3 he absconded his rulership of the earth that God had given to him. And so here is Satan, and he's saying, look, I am the official representative of the earth. And notice, God didn't refute him. God didn't say, nah, you're lying. You, the earth is not yours. Verse 8, the Lord said to him, hast thou considered my servant Job? Here's what the devil was saying. He was like, look, uh, God, you're having this meeting. I'm here because I have a territory and it's called Earth. And, you know, you and I got beef. Goes way back. But, you know, I've got the Earth and that's my territory. You got the rest of the universe, right? And these people, you know, give allegiance to you, but I've got my territory. But then God says, I, I hear you, bro, but in your territory, there's, there's somebody in there that's kind of messing with your program. And his name is Job. Have you heard of him? Has the devil heard of you? Are you messing with his program? When he looks at the earth and he says, I have my territory, I got my people who are doing my bidding. They're living the way that I want them to live. What does God turn to the devil and say, hey, have you heard of my servant? I'm looking for a name tag. <laughs> Insert name, Liddy. Has the devil heard of you because you are messing with what he's trying to do on this earth? God said, have you heard of my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth. Perfect, upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Oh, my pen. The devil says, uh, yeah, I, I've heard of Job, that he fears you and you know, he serves you and stuff. But the only reason he does that is because you're protecting him. You're blessing him. Basically, you're buying his love. Does Job fear you for nothing? I mean, it's not because you're a God of love. It's not because of your good character. But it's because you're all-powerful and you're using your power to manipulate the situation. If you withdrew your power from protecting Job, 
I'm pretty sure that it'd be game over. The whole earth would be mine. Verse 10. Hast not thou made a hedge about him, about his house, about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance increased in land. You put forth now, touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. I had a... When I... There was a period in my life where God kind of withdrew that hedge of protection that I've always known. And, and like the, 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 the sweet serenity and goodness of life was kind of gone for a little bit. And I am disappointed to confess that what the devil talked about, that stuff is real. I was like, God, what I ever do to you? Why, why are you doing this to me? It's like, God, like, seriously? I mean, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to work for you. I'm trying to, like, be faithful to you. And suddenly, like, when, when, when that hedge, and, and God does place a hedge of protection around us. Amen? Amen. He does. But maybe sometimes, maybe once in a while, maybe it's because he actually trusts us. Not trusts us in and of ourselves, but he trusts that in that moment we will turn to him. But when I went through that, I said, God, this is not fair. This is not fair. Why are you doing this to me? And that's where the question of theodicy comes. When things happen in your life and you're like, Lord, what I do to deserve this? Why, why is this happening to me? And sometimes it's not to me. Sometimes it's to my friend or my family. And it's like, Lord, why is this happening? What did that person do to deserve to be treated like that? A friend of mine asked me, they said, you know, you know, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. She said, then how come most of the, the most religious countries are the poorest countries? She said, why is that the case? If God says, seek, me, seek ye first the kingdom of God, I'll add... She said, God is talking, you look at the verse, he's talking about food, he's talking about clothing, he's talking about your basic necessities. And she's like, look at those places that are religious. Look at Africa. Look at Latin America. Those guys are po. And she's like, what gives? When God doesn't have that hedge of protection, that, that, that nice warm safety around us, what do we do in response? How do we respond? And the devil said, the devil predicted that if God just removes it just a little bit, you're going to curse him to his face. Here's how God responded. But P.S. Job knows nothing about this. He's just living his life. The Lord said unto Satan, verse 12, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. We talked yesterday about the devil casting accusations against God's character. And, and I said we will expound more on this patience that God has in, this con in the context of the great controversy. The kind of accusations that the devil hurls against God are not the kind that you just say, well, no, Job doesn't worship me just because I protect him. And then you're done. Because then he's like, yeah, but you're still protecting him. Right? The devil says, yeah, God is a liar. And God's like, no, I'm not a liar. It's like, uh, yeah, that's what a liar would say. The kind of the accusations that the devil is hurling against God, they're against his character. Which means that his character needs to be demonstrated, right? So in this instance, God, the devil is accusing God of abusing his omnipotence. Abusing his power. So incidentally, those of you who know the story, if you don't, go, go and read the book of Job. 
The devil touches everything Job has. His riches, gone. In a day. His children, gone. I've heard that the most painful thing for a person is, is to see their child die before them. That's what I've heard. Because as a parent, you're thinking like, you know, I, I bring the children into the world, you raise them and you want to see them prosper. To see your children go before you go, like, and not just one of them. You know, uh, my husband and I, after we had our one child, um, my mom's like, you have to have another one. And I'm like, why, man? It was so painful. <laughs> she's, she's like, well, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to sound morbid. She's like, but what if this one dies? Then you'll have another one. And I'm like, it's logical, but <laughs> I'm not sure one child can replace it. But okay, okay. But now imagine, right? All your children gone. For those of you who are in school, it's like you know you you've been working on your your PhD, your masters, your your your, your bachelor's degree, and like all your credits wiped out. Okay, you understood that one. <laughs> they were like, "What? My credits?" <laughs> Just like that, gone. But you know what? His wife remained though. But the devil knew why. After all of that, Job doesn't curse God. Let's go back to the Bible. Verse 20. Job arose, he rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and did what? And worshipped? Now the devil's scratching his head, right? Here's what Job says. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. And naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, but charged God foolishly. Man. What the devil had said had been completely refuted in the life of Job. You see that? The devil said, you are abusing your omnipotence, God. You're using it to manipulate your creation to to worship you. And God said, all right, take away the things that you think are causing these people to worship me. And when all those things were gone, Job bowed down in the midst of his suffering. In the midst of his pain. And he did what? Worshipped. That is a life that's an answer to the great controversy. This is where we fit into the picture, guys. This is where we fall into this great controversy meta-narrative is that every single day, the devil continues to hurl these accusations against God. God is not good. God is not fair. God is mean-spirited. God is jealous of you. God is just trying to hold you back. And then the way that I respond in my life becomes a witness either in favor of God or in favor of the devil's accusations. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the devil's side on this. I don't want my life to say, yeah, God's a liar. The way that we live, and we're gonna, when we go into the next part where we're talking about more lifestyle things, that's, that's why those things matter. Those things matter in this context. Because the way that I live is an argument either in favor of God and his character and the goodness of his character, or I'm siding with the devil. And the sad thing, when Eve ate that fruit, it's like, what's, what a big, what big deal these ate? It was just a fruit, not necessarily an apple. It's just a fruit. But it's such a big deal because that act, a small act, by the way, of eating the fruit said, I believe or I cast my vote on your side, Satan. 
God continues, I mean, the devil continues as, as the narrative goes. The devil continues and he's like, yeah, 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 okay, but if, if you let me touch Job, right? Maybe Job didn't really love his kids or he didn't really care about the money and stuff. But if you just let me touch Job, touch him in his person, and, and, and I know then, then he'll definitely curse you. And so the rest of the book goes through this painful experience of Job's body being racked with illness. And remember I said the wife was left behind? All the kids died, rich is gone. I suspect the devil knew that somehow he might have a way to, to use the wife to his own purposes. And she becomes a discouragement in the life of Job. Those of y'all who want to get married, be careful. Seriously. <laughs> like, the person you marry can bring you up, they can bring you down. I mean, I, I, I now say it after seeing it in my friends' lives, friends who married people who didn't care about God, who didn't, who didn't have a love for the truth, even though they knew the truth. We'll talk more about this next session. And they just lost it. We'll talk more about it later. Okay. So I just want to go to the end of Job. End of the book. Job gets to the point where he's asking God these questions. Like he he doesn't curse God, but he does get to the place where 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 this is a painful experience and he's very frank with God and he's honest with God when you go read the narrative finally in chapter 38 the entire time God knew what had happened in heaven God knew why this was happening to Job but what we get from the story is the entire time that Job is suffering and going through all of this stuff it's like God is silent and Job doesn't know the backstory. Matter of fact, by the time we get to the end of the book, God never tells Job the backstory. He never tells him, he's like, okay, Job, you know why you had to go through that, bruh? You know, the other day the devil came up to heaven. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell Job that. Here's God's, let's, we'll start reading God's response, Job 38. When God finally speaks, the Lord answers Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, I'm looking for a color. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, Job, there are things that you don't know. There are things that you don't know that are impacting your present reality. He says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer me. <laughs> and then he goes into a barrage of questions, which, you know, if you read them, it's like, that's kind of unfair, God. I mean, you're God. Like, how can you ask me that? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you've got understanding, tell me. If, 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 if you feel like you, you, you know and you completely understand the situation, you tell me, where were you? He keeps going. Who laid the measures thereof? And if you know, or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon the foundations thereof fastened? And who had laid the cornerstone thereof? God goes into this question after question on things that Job has no clue about. Look, the questions that God asks Job are the kind of questions that scientists today are still studying. And they don't know. Scientists are baffled at how the universe came into existence. Why? Because how does, how does matter come to existence from nothing? It's, it's, it's a scientific impossibility. And so science is baffled by the questions that Job, God was asking Job. And basically God was saying, your knowledge is limited. Your knowledge is limited. 
I know things that you don't know and that things you can't know. Right? In my omniscience. Like, I'm not just an omnipotent God. I'm omniscient. I'm actually all these things and more. And little you, in the midst of your suffering, in order for you to, to, to feel like you've got a full grasp on the situation, you need to actually believe that you know everything. But if you can admit that you don't know everything, then that gives you perspective on your situation. God keeps asking these questions and he's like, where were you, Job? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when this happened? And who did this? I.e., I did and you didn't. I'm powerful, I'm all-powerful, and you're not. I'm all-knowing and you're not. Job, you are limited and I am limitless. And at the end of it, God is saying, Job, you may not understand, but trust me. Job, you don't get the full picture, but trust me. Not just trust me because of what I know and what I can do, but trust me because of who I am. Trust my character. Trust that I'm the kind of God who's looking out for your best interest. Job, trust me. He never gives him any other answer. That's it. You go to the end of the, cha- uh, end of the book, God is like, where were you when I did this? And that's God's answer to Job's questions. That's God's answer to Job's theodicy. God's answer is trust me. Trust my character. It's a humbling answer. It's a humbling answer because it it requires you to get to the end of yourself and admit, admit that I can't know everything. This relates to our conversation on free will and we'll just, we'll, we'll, kind of like piggyback on it that way when when we talk about free will and and you know and the sovereignty of god like if you were to make a decision tell me this if if you're trying to make a decision whatever kind of decision let's say uh uh who's picking a college soon college to attend there we go all right you're picking what college to go to or who's picking a grad school picking a grad school there we go uh who's picking a wife Wife, nobody, <laughs> all right. Okay, you're, you're trying to make a life decision, right? What do you try to do in order to make that decision? You gather information, right? No? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, I'm trying to pick a college, so I, I think about what are the parameters, parameters that are important to me, and then I try to gather as much information about the colleges that are available. So, you know, uh, University of Texas has a lot of people in it, I'm sure, because Texas is big. Um, but Baylor is in Texas too, right? Yeah, Baylor is smaller, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> Nobody. Is anyone from Texas? Okay, like two people. Okay. <laughs> I picked the wrong example. Okay, so you, you, you're trying to gather information about the decision you need to make. The more information that you can gather, the more confident you can be about your decision. Yes? Yes. Um, and and when, I, when I was looking for schools, I went to interviews with the colleges, you know, like pre-interviews, like not an actual interview, but an interview where I was interviewing them. Like, okay, so what's your uh, student-to-teacher ratio in your classes? Okay, what are the extracurriculars available? I was interviewing them because I wanted to know more information. They gave me the contact information for alumni from the school. Hey, so you graduated from the school. What career are you in? How hard was it to get a job? How hard was it to get into grad school? Information gathering. Yes. Because I want to make a decision. I want to know as much as possible in order to make as informed a decision as possible. Yes? Yes. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We read this yesterday. The serpent who was more subtle than any beast 
of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 2, the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, the serpent said, You shall not surely die. Verse 5, here's the crux, 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 crux of the matter. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The devil accuses God of withholding information. Yeah? The devil says that God is, you know, you know this thing of like you being free? You're actually not free. Because there's information that God is withholding from you that if you knew, your decision making would be different. So God giving you the illusion of freedom when in fact you are not actually free. Makes sense? Um, my, my son, <laughs> this morning I was, I was, I had a drink. It was a fizzy drink, um, to help with, with the flow of energies in my body. And, uh, we don't typically drink fizzy drinks in our home. And I don't let, <laughs> I don't let, uh, my kids drink fizzy drinks. So he sees this and usually everything that I eat, he can eat. So he sees us and he's like, Mama, give me some, right? And I'm like, you don't want this. This is medicine. <laughs> um, and, and he's like, no, I want it. I want it. And to save the day, my husband actually had some real, some medicine. You know, the, 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 there's like this potion, I think from Eden Valley. What's it called? Like, it's this like crazy potion of, of garlic and healthy things <laughs> you take it and it prevents all everything <laughs> you will never get sick <laughs> so he had some of that and so he, he was taking some I was like hey look your, your dad's taking some medicine and I'm taking medicine he's like I want that too I'm like okay give him some of that <laughs> and he didn't want any more <laughs> if my son knew that I was actually kind of withholding information from him because I knew that if he tasted what I had, he would actually want more. I'm not taking it for pleasure, by the way. I was taking it for medicinal purposes. All right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I knew that my son would want more. I withheld information from him. I did. I withheld information from him. If he knew that I was withholding information from him, like, I eat, this is yummy. And somebody comes to him and is like, your mother, she, she's withholding information from you. Like, she's a meanie. You know? She, she, she wants you to think you're free to choose. Like, she, because he ended up deciding he didn't want it, right? So, free will. He said, I don't want it, right? Because he tasted the other medicine, didn't taste good. So, he's like, I don't want medicine. And if, if somebody spoke to him and said, you have the illusion of free will, but you're not actually free to choose because... God is withholding necessary, essential information from you. And that's what the devil said to Eve. He said, God knows. You're here and you have to choose whether to eat the fruit or not. But this is an illusion of freedom because God is actually withholding information from you. And if you knew what I knew, your decision making would be different. There's a thing of free will. This has to do with God's omniscience. What God knows. Here's the problem, guys. Here's the problem. Is it possible for us to ever know everything God knows? That's the problem. It's not possible. Is it possible for us to, to, to ever have all the power that God has? No. So when I come to a situation and I need to make a decision, and the best way to make a decision is to have all available information, i.e. what happened in the past, what is currently happening now, what could potentially happen in the future, if I knew all of that, I could make the best possible decision right now. And that would be the freest exercise of my will.
the fullest exercise of free will. Is it possible for me to ever do that? Is it possible for any created being, I'm not even talking about just humans, I'm talking about angels, to ever do that? No. The only being in the entire universe who has all knowledge, all power, is God. When yesterday I drew a line between creator and created, and I said there's no way you can ever jump from created to creator. No matter how hard you try, you can never make that leap. And because of that distinction, you will never, ever be able to be God. You will never have his omniscience. You will never be able to make decisions the way that God can. And that's why, my brothers and sisters, when we're making decisions, who should we talk to? That's why we should consult with God. Because God knows. God knows what we never could know. So actually the freest exercise of our will is to surrender that will to God. And I'm out of time. Well, next, next session, I'll, I'll give a wrapping uh, thought on this, on the importance of surrender and what that looks like, surrendering our will to God. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Loving Father, we recognize our limitedness. And we recognize that you are limitless. And Lord, we're in the mix of this great controversy there are all these accusations floating around about you. The devil doesn't want us to trust you. He wants us to think you, you abuse your omniscience. You abuse your omnipotence. But Lord, your word is a testimony that you are not that kind of God. And Lord, as we taste of your goodness in our own lives, we see that you are not that kind of God. Lord, we pray for the faithfulness that Job had. That even if you remove... <laughs> your hedge of protection around us, we would continue to trust you. Lord, we pray that we would have such a confidence in your love for us and in your, the goodness of your character that we would make us witnesses in favor of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.